You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks, along with Rob Rang. Happy Tuesday to all of our listeners. Let's get on to the new story of the day here on Locked On Seahawks. Normally by this time of year, with the calendar turning to June, most if not all NFL draft picks have been signed. And obviously, Rob, that's not been the case this offseason. There just hasn't been the typical urgency that you normally see because there haven't been offseason workouts. Players haven't worried about getting signed so they can participate in OTAs, mandatory minicamp, you name it. But the Seahawks are one of the last teams that had not signed any of their rookies. Finally, that has come to an end here today, locking up the first of their eight selections per the NFL transaction wire, tight end Colby Parkinson agreeing to terms on his slotted four-year rookie deal. Yeah, it was a little bit surprising that, that the Seahawks started off with Parkinson, but at the same time, obviously, this is a player that, that you're very excited about getting into the fold. I mean, uh, you know, the, the Seahawks, like everybody else, have had other things on their mind at this point. Um, you know, and then, of course, there was all the talk about trying to uh, to bring back Jadavian Clowney and all that. You can understand why uh, that the assigning the, 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 the rookie players to a deal has been a little bit delayed. I mean, let's face it, um, with the new CBA, rookie contracts are basically basically, uh, you know, just kind of slotting things in. Um, and when you're talking about a player like Kobe Parkinson, who, uh, you know, is, is going to be asked to play a, a variety of different roles, or at least they anticipate that, given what he did at Stanford um, and, and his size and size potential, then I think that it makes sense to make sure you get him locked up and, and hopefully stay in that playbook as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's been the key this offseason for these players. And Colby Parkinson shouldn't have any issues getting this offense down. If you remember, Pete Carroll was talking about this after the draft, that Colby Parkinson was 220 pounds when he arrived at Stanford, and they just couldn't keep him off the field as a freshman. They were planning to redshirt him. That ended up not happening because this kid was able to come in and he just played too well in the practice field and they had to play him. So he's going to be hoping to be able to do that with the Seahawks. And this is the kind of individual that I think has a really good chance, even with this either completely lost or abbreviated offseason, depending what happens at the end of this month. You know, I think he's set up to have maybe have the most success out of the rookies, at least for the day three players that were drafted by the Seahawks, even coming out of college after his junior year and being an early entrant. I think when you look at the numbers that Parkinson put up at Stanford, we've talked about this a few times already, just one touchdown last year, but that doesn't really reflect the player that we're talking about here. They had major quarterback issues last year. Their starter, Costello, got injured early in the season, and then they were playing backups, and they struggled to get the football to this kid. But you can't tell me that Russell Wilson is not excited about having a six foot seven target that has really soft hands, did not drop a single pass last year. I still think it's going to be tough for him to make an impact right away as an inline tight end, but I absolutely think you're going to see him for a few plays a game out playing in that slot position. I think in the get in the red zone, he is going to get a lot of snaps this year because of that size and the soft hands he brings to the table. 
I think they certainly could. That's why I'm excited about him, Corbin. I mean, you're right. I mean, at six seven, uh, you know, in, in the soft hands, as you mentioned, no drops a year ago when he had a, a career high forty eight uh, receptions, um, and and I think he only had three drops in his entire career. Uh, so three drops in, in three seasons as being a standout um, at Stanford. Obviously, a pro style offense there, um, going up against the top competition. You, you mentioned the fact that carpet that Parkinson's number. Were, were down this past season. It, w- it was the loss of the quarterback Costello, who, interestingly enough, for for you know local Seattle and, and Pacific Northwest fans, uh, Costello is actually transferred to Mississippi State, where he will be working under uh, former Washington State head coach Mike Leach. So you're going to be hearing plenty of plenty of talk about Costello moving forward for those people who are interested in the college football game. Going back to Parkinson, though, with with uh, with the quarterback uh, going down and then off the, the offensive tackle that they had there, Walker Little, a first-round caliber player, Stanford was just gutted, Corbin. And so everybody knew that basically stopping Stanford was going to try to focus in on Kobe Parkinson. And that's why you saw his touchdown numbers just absolutely shrink. He had seven touchdowns, was one of the most productive tight ends in the entire country as a true sophomore, and then dropped from seven touchdowns to just one this past season, obviously made the jump to the NFL. I think the Seahawks have potentially have a steal here, but we've talked about this before with, with this club. The Seahawks have really struggled with fourth round selections on pass catchers. Obviously, Parkinson is more of a tight end than a receiver, so maybe we're not going to see some of the, the, the issues that they've had in the past, but this has been a real bugaboo for them, but Parkinson has the size. He has the soft hands. He really could be that number three pass catcher that Seattle is desperate to find for their offense to really explode. And we talked about this immediately after Parkinson was picked, our first podcast after the day three selections were made by the Seahawks, that this is a player that was getting some late first, second round buzz going into his junior season. Early mock drafts, he was a much higher draft pick, and certainly the lack of touchdowns and some consistency issues this past season. And again, I don't think it really was his fault, but that ended up dropping him down a peg. And then I actually was kind of surprised that he lasted into the fourth round considering his size and how well that he ran at the combine. But uh, teams just weren't overly enthused about this tight end class. And I think the Seahawks can benefit from that. There were a lot of fans that were thinking, oh, they shouldn't draft that position with the moves they've made. But Greg Olson's not getting any younger. Will Disley's had injury issues. This was a move that I think was a really smart one in the fourth round for a player that can produce some for you early and I think eventually get a little more muscle on that frame. He's got the chance to be a very good, true inline tight end in the National Football League. Per spot track, Parkinson's contract is estimated to be worth a little under $4 million, $3.965 million per four years. His cap hit is expected to be under $800,000, so just kind of a nice little nudge here to the idea that winning teams do well in the draft because it really helps you build a football team where you can still have stars on your roster away from the quarterback position when you have other contributors that are on rookie contracts. 
Oh, exactly. It's absolutely critical. Uh, you know, that, that's one of the reasons that uh, you know that it is so important that Seattle does well with those later those day three draft picks like uh, Parkinson is, is because when you have so many dollars already allocated to some of your superstars, um, then then basically you have to have everybody else taking a little bit less. And so the the good teams are able to draft young players and obviously have them be very successful and and result in wins. The, the bad teams uh, wind up allocating that money to a couple of different players and then and then can't replace the the you know the kind of the the, the bread and br- the bread and butter excuse me uh, of of your roster the, the players that aren't elites but are the next group and so that's where you're hoping that Parkinson can be and you're hoping eventually he's going to wind up being one of those elite players for your team when we return in the second quarter we're going to swing back to the defense in our latest position by position analysis we're going to the cornerback position and There are now some question marks there that weren't there a few weeks ago. So we're going to look at this group as a whole. Some of the young players coming in that may be intriguing, especially a couple undrafted rookie free agents that fit the size athleticism bill the Seahawks look for at the position. Don't go away. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back to the Locked On Seahawks podcast. This is your host, Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, Rob Rang. Later in the third quarter, continuing our Turn Back the Clock series. Yesterday, we went back to 1981. We're going to go a little more recent history here, back to the wonderful year of 1997. Look back at what the Seahawks accomplished and what was going on outside of football during that time. Let's talk cornerbacks first, though, Rob. This corner position, Seattle felt like in March, they dramatically upgraded. They traded away a fifth-round pick to the Redskins to get Quinton Dunbar, a player that has had some injury issues the last few years. But last season, the first 11 games before going down ended up on injured reserve. He was one of the best corners in football, had four interceptions during that time, earned the second-highest grade overall for a corner from Pro Football Focus behind only former Seahawks star Richard Sherman. And he's that big-bodied, long-armed, athletic body that they want on the outside. They were hoping to couple him with Shaquille Griffin. Obviously now with Dunbar's legal situation, we don't know what's going to happen there, but he's still got charges against him for armed robbery. And as we await what the next update is there, it's kind of put a little bit of a cloud on what the Seahawks are going to do at that corner position in 2020. Let's put a huge cloud over Corbin. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the Seahawks, I think we're, we're, we're pretty confident, you know, I think we're patting themselves on the back a little bit that they, they got them, uh, got themselves a terrific football player and Quentin Dunbar for a, for a low price. And, uh, you know, and that is something that John Schneider, Anderson's done such a terrific job of with some of his trades here in recent years. I think that they thought that they had another one, and, and probably do, because you're absolutely right. Dunbar checks every box that you're looking for um, for a, a classic Pete Carroll cornerback. Um, but at the same time, now you, you're, you're not so sure what's going to happen there, which is one of the reasons why I'm just happy from a from a Seahawk perspective that they that they still have Trey Flowers. You, you see so many teams that when they that there's been speculation that they're going to move on from another player, they they just go with that speculation and wind up you know cutting bait essentially with Trey Flowers. You have a young player who 
you know, it was only a couple of years ago that, that Shaquille Griffin was the one who was struggling after a disappointing season. And, and so I think that you you have an opportunity here with Trey Flowers to be able to kind of steal back that position. We we talked before about, say, like LJ Collier and how he feels that he's been disrespected. Flowers, I'm sure, is feeling the same way. And so I think this sets up for a very nice situation if the Seahawks have Dunbar back, then I think that it's going to be a, you know, kind of a knock them, drag them out fight between Flowers and Dunbar because I do believe Flowers is a very talented player. I like the depth regardless of who winds up winning that other position. Obviously, you have Griffin in a, in a, in, a, in my opinion, at least a young star at the cornerback position, but one who is coming on free agency soon. And so it's going to be interesting to see what decisions Seattle has there as well as with Dunbar. Uh, and it, to me, it's the, it's the nickel cornerback position that's something we got to talk about a little bit more. But I, I do have some concerns about Seattle's depth if Dunbar is is not uh, part of the plans. We saw it in the playoffs. Trey Flowers, and I, I've been adamant about this, I did a film breakdown on his 2019 season, that there was a while in the middle of the year that I actually thought he was playing better than Shaquille Griffin was in the middle of the season when they were playing against teams like Baltimore and San Francisco in Week 10. He was giving them really good performance as a tackler in coverage he was making plays in the football ended up with three interceptions which tied for the team lead he had none as a rookie so there were a lot of things to be encouraged about in his development the problem is fans are always going to remember what happened most recently and Trey Flowers did not play well at all in the playoffs and really his biggest issue in those postseason games was not being in good position to make a play. It was panicking. He had a couple horrible pass interference penalties that easily could have been avoided. He was in good position to make a play, and he panicked, got his hands on the receiver, and the officials are not going to miss those plays 99% of the time, and that was an issue for him throughout his second season. And I think some of it still goes back to the fact that he still only played two positions or two seasons at that cornerback position. And so he's still learning on the fly. He's got a lot of game experience the last two years. So I still think that his trajectory is moving upward the way the Seahawks could have only could have hoped when they drafted in the fifth round it was going to be moving him to that corner position. But at the same time, it was evident in the playoffs that they at least needed to bring somebody in that could push him Quentin Dunbar, when he's been healthy, has been fantastic, and you make the argument he has been the better player of these two, but I'm with you now with what's happened here the last few weeks, regardless of what happens with this armed robbery case. If he's completely uh, acquitted of this, doesn't have any issues, then I still think he's going to have to win that job, and Trey Flowers is not going to just hand it over to him, and I think the Seahawks have made it clear, listening to Pete Carroll and John Schneider, that that's what they hope. They're hoping he's going to be motivated and coming in, wanting to retain his job, and maybe then Quentin Dunbar is going to get some snaps out of the slot. I think regardless of what happens, Trey Flowers is still going to get his snaps on the field for this football team, but I agree with you going to the depth standpoint. If they don't have Dunbar, they didn't really make any other additions. They didn't draft any other corners. They didn't sign any other corners in free agency. And so that leaves you with players like Nico Thorpe, the, the veteran special teams player, Lyndon Stevens, Ryan Neal, Brian Allen, former Utah player. None of those guys have extensive experience. Uh, Lyndon Stevens has played more than those other guys I mentioned. He's played three regular season games in his NFL career. And the three undrafted rookie free agents might have some upside, but 
you're not going to want to chuck one of those guys into the lineup as a rookie either. So I'm with you. They put a lot of stock into Quentin Dunbar when they traded for him. And now that there's potential for him to be suspended or cut, we don't know how this is going to play out. Uh, that lack of depth in the back end at this position, that could be problematic, just like the tackle position we talked about yesterday. It absolutely could. And I think that's a good parallel, that tackle position, because, again, I think that everybody is going to focus in on uh, on Dunbar, and rightfully so, and on, in my opinion, the left tackle position for the Seahawks, because Dwayne Brown being the elite player that he is, if he were to go down injury, then you have a real concern there, just because, again, you're talking about a pro bowler. But I think the Seattle is actually a little bit better, as I mentioned yesterday, in the backup uh, left tackle position, Marco Jones. And I think that while everybody's going to be focusing on Dunbar, as we talked about, that the Flowers actually actually gives you a little bit of a backup plan there. Uh, again, I, I have some concerns about the nickel corner spot. Um, I'm very curious to see if Shaquille Griffin would be willing to do that. To me, I, I look at Seattle's roster and I see eight or nine guys that are all 6'2", 6'3", at the cornerback position. And I only see three that, that are six foot. And those those happen to be some of the best athletes on your team at the, at the cornerback position, Griffin being one of them. Uh, I am kind of curious about Lyndon Stevens, who who did have uh, you know kind of a cup of coffee with the Seahawks a year ago, was brought back. But the other one is a is another uh, undrafted free agent, as you mentioned, uh, and Kim Siverin from from Oklahoma State. So I, I just don't. I have some concerns about that just because you're seeing so many teams that are, of course, uh, throwing the ball so much to the slot receivers. You know that's going to happen with the, the Los Angeles Rams and the Arizona Cardinals, the, the, the way that their rosters are constructed. And, and so I, I do have some legitimate concerns about that for, for the Seahawks. But I will say this. This is another case of, of, again, like tackles, the Seahawks doing what the Seahawks do. They, as I mentioned, all these corners who are six foot and taller, every single one on the Seahawks roster is six foot or taller and virtually all of them have those long arms that we know Pete Carroll loves uh you know Seattle is basically doing what they do they're looking for guys who can smother receivers at the point of attack deflect some passes and and try to create big plays going the opposite way and I know the organization last year was excited about Ryan Neal they promoted him late in the year and he actually got a few special team snaps in the playoffs and he's a bigger body guy that's played some safety and corner Brian Allen is another guy that's a physical corner so they have some players there they've now had in the system for a while that they're hoping they can continue to develop and the vast majority of the undrafted rookies that they signed, Davion Renfro, Gavin Heslip, who's coming out of Stony Brook, a FCS school, those two players are longer athletic corners, just like they're always looking for on the outside, that both are going to take some development. Those guys are going to need some time before they're ready to see the field. But at the nickel position, the reason I keep bringing up Quentin Dunbar getting snaps there, and maybe Shaquille Griffin could play there as well, as you mentioned, is just... Amadi still doesn't have a ton of experience there, and while I saw some promising things at the position, I was really thinking the Seahawks were going to add another veteran to push him at that spot, and they didn't. They maybe had an opportunity to go after somebody like Nikel Roby Coleman, didn't do it after he was released by the Rams, ended up signing elsewhere, and it wasn't for a huge contract either. There were a couple of other corners and safeties that they could have looked at that maybe had the makeup to play slot corner and they haven't brought any of those players in so that was maybe one of the bigger surprises for me as far as free agency goes at least at this point not going out and getting a veteran that can really compete against 
Ugo Amadi at that slot position. I think right now we're just going to see a by-committee approach there. He's probably the main guy, but you could see big nickel packages with players like Marquise Blair. Maybe Trey Flowers, being a former college safety, could play that role like Akeem King did in recent seasons. But there's there's going to be some question marks at that position again for a second straight year. Last year, Jamar Taylor got a lot of the reps early. He struggled with the Seahawks, eventually got cut, and then they moved to Ugo Amadi. They're certainly going to be in a position where that position has not necessarily been answered yet. I agree. I, I'm happy that you mentioned Ugo Amadi because I was remiss in just saying that you know all those corners are, are six foot and taller. Obviously, Amadi did play nickel uh, a lot last year for the Seahawks as a rookie. Is on their roster, which we all know is you know kind of put together by the, the media department rather than the actual coaches. But he is listed as a free safety, and that's why I missed him before. And, and Amadi's a player that I'm very high on. I mean, I went to Oregon the last couple of years during the summer to watch the quarterback uh, Justin Herbert. But Amadi was the defensive player who really jumped off the field for me a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, and so when Seattle drafted him, I thought, wow, this is quite the departure from the the type of player that they've gone with in the past in terms of the, the, the size. But he is a playmaker. And you saw flashes of it just this past season, on not only on defense, but on special teams as well. So I, I'm very excited about Amadi. I just think that, again, considering how many very, very good uh, passing attacks you're going to see, this year, um, you know, for the Seahawks perspective, that I think that you want to have multiple nickel corners that have the ability to cover. And maybe one of the guys that we mentioned will be in the mix there. I know Carroll name dropped Lyndon Stevens after the draft as a player they signed that could get some looks over there. He did play in a few games for the Dolphins at the end of the season last year. Maybe one of those undrafted rookies can fit in there as well. I just think the big question mark to watch here, aside from the fact you, you know you don't really know what's going to happen to that nickel position completely, if Dunbar can't play, if he's suspended for a while, or if he ends up getting charged, not just charged, but um, he's guilty for these crimes that he's been alleged to commit, then if one of those undrafted rookies might end up making your roster, whether that's Renfro or Heslip or Siverin, one of those players may have a chance to make the team. If Dunbar's there and he's not suspended, it's a little different. I think it's going to be much tougher for those undrafted players to have an opportunity. Maybe one or two of them end up on the practice squad. But So that's a, that's a big dynamic here because of the depth issues they have. You take Dunbar out of the equation, who was maybe your biggest acquisition the entire offseason, now you might have to replace him on the depth chart with an undrafted rookie that uh, probably isn't ready to be on an NFL field, maybe aside from special teams. And so that is something we're going to be watching here as we wait for more details to unfold on Dunbar's case. When we come back for the third quarter, our second segment in the Turn Back the Clock series, yesterday we went back to 1981. We're going to go a little more recent Looking back at 1997, which ended up being a really important year in Seahawks history, even though they didn't make the playoffs that year, still was an important season for this franchise. And it was quite a year for the world, to be honest. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome back. Glad to have you joining us here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast. I'm your host, Corbin Smith, along with Rob Rang. Throughout the course of this week, we're going to be turning back the clock. We're going to be looking back at a previous season in Seahawks history. And 
kind of look at what was going on outside of the football world as well. We kicked off the series yesterday with 1981. Today we drew 1997, which honestly was a better season for the Seattle Seahawks. But at the same time, I look back at this year, I I was eight years old at the time. So this is really when I was starting to really remember yeah, you know, I could tell you what happened the year, a couple years before, but uh, you know, I was a little kid. This was really the first, one of the first seasons where I was really becoming a diehard fan following this football team, and it was a team that had a lot of talent at a variety of different positions, and yet they still couldn't find a way to get to the playoffs. And this was really, you know, the next year they missed the playoffs again. Dennis Erickson ends up being ousted, and then Mike Holmgren comes in. So this was an era where, you know, end of the 90s, there was quite a bit of turnover. But I think I'd be remiss not to start this off, Rob, without mentioning that this is the year that Paul Allen purchased the team from Ken Baring. Yeah, that, that's the most important thing. Uh, you know, once Paul Allen basically saved the franchise, uh, you know, or at least saved it in terms of them staying in Seattle, then that, that's, uh, you know, with the exception of, uh, the, you know, the when the franchise first joined the, the you know, the NFL in, in 1976, that, that's the single biggest thing, you know, in, in franchise history. Um, the only other thing that you could compare it to, I guess, would be when when the team won the Super Bowl, obviously under Paul Allen's direction. So, yeah, I, I think that, that that's where you have, um, you know, for me, Corbin, where I start, when I think of the 1997 team and every other team out there, when we're doing this kind of take a, a peek back, uh, you know, series, I, you know, as a draft guy, of course, I'm going to go to the NFL draft. And you, you mentioned this 1997 team and how it was the transition. Well, the, the, the two players that the Seahawks took to start off the 1997 draft were a big part of that transition because they used the number three overall pick on Sean Springs. They they traded for the number six overall pick to select the Hall of Famer Walter Jones. Uh, I mean, talk about two absolute you know foundational pieces uh, of what the Seahawks were going to do uh, moving forward. Obviously, Jones um, and everything that he did for the Seahawks throughout his entire career is we, we've talked about so many times. Springs was a heck of a of a player as well, um, you know, but obviously he wound up having some of his success elsewhere than Seattle, but still from, from a draft perspective, uh, it, it, it was something that, that put the Seahawks, um, you know, kind of in the driver's seat a little bit in, in terms of the 1997 draft. It gave Dennis Erickson that opportunity um, to, to put this team, uh, you know, on, on the winning path. And unfortunately, they were not able to do so, finishing 8-8, eight and eight, uh, third place in the AFC West. This is five years before the, the team would jump, make that jump to the NFC West. Uh, but it, it certainly was an interesting up and down roller coaster type of a season. Uh, you know, and one that I can actually kind of go back and, and remember the very first game, at least the first regular season game that year and talk about a talk about a disappointment that it was it was a very much a, a staple of the way the Seahawks uh, 1997 season went. Yeah, that was a disappointing opener. But I mean, they went five and three their first eight games. I think Seahawks fans at the time were thinking we've got a lot of good young talent here. We're already coming together. We've got, we're two games over 500. We've got a real chance to get to the playoffs for the first time in the nineties. And it ends up not happening because starting in week 10 was really when the slide happened. They lost five in their next, next six games. They did win their last two games to claw back to 500, but 
they just really struggled throughout the second half of the season. And that was really the issue under Dennis Erickson. They would have three or four games where it looked like they were over the hump, that this was going to be a contending football team. And then you would have four or five games where, well, it looks like it's 1992 again. They just could not find any consistency. And and this year really was the ultimate year to showcase that with how up and down that it was. And I just think it was just, it was such a strange dynamic looking at this roster. You had a 41-year-old Warren Moon playing quarterback, and he was still very good. He threw 26 touchdown passes that year. It was his final Pro Bowl in the NFL at 41 years young. So he was still very productive in 14 starts for Seattle that year. Chris Warren had over 800 rushing yards, under 1,000 for the second straight year, but he still had a very healthy yards per carry average. I think if we went back in time and looked at that season, a lot of people would question if Dennis Erickson gave him enough carries. I think he was still in his prime and he could have handled a bigger workload. He's probably still a thousand plus yard rusher. Who knows if that makes a difference getting to the playoffs or not. They also had a trio of really solid receivers headlined by Joey Galloway with over a thousand receiving yards and 12 touchdowns. I think Joey Galloway was just happy to have a good quarterback throwing the football to him after his first couple years in the league. No, exactly. I'm sure that he was. And, you know, when you had Warren Moon, who, as you said, Corbin, I mean, wound up in the Pro Bowl that year. He was the, the Pro Bowl MVP that year. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it definitely gave Joey Galloway and, and some of Seattle's other uh, you know, speedy receivers that year an opportunity to flourish. And, and you saw some of the big play potential that they had. And you're absolutely right. It, you know, in explaining just kind of how the, this team was so frustrating because they, they did have so much talent. I mean, you, you look at this roster and it's just absolutely stacked. It certainly was the most talented team that, that Dennis Erickson had, and it was a huge disappointment for the team to go 8-8. Eight and eight. I mean, I, I remember, again, when, when the Seahawks drafted Sean Springs and Walter Jones, two players who was a, you know, I was a young 18-year-old draft analyst at that point, so I didn't know much, but I was absolutely certain that the Seahawks got two really, really good players in Springs and Walter Jones and expected them to be able to make an immediate impact. And was very excited about it and was telling basically everybody that 1997, this was the year the Seahawks were going to have big, big things. And then as I mentioned in that opening game of the season at home against the New York Jets, I have my best friend Gino is sitting right next to me. We're up there in the kingdom seats ready for it all to happen. And the Seahawks get smoked 41 to 3 in the season opener and talk about a humbling experience that was. And, and just again, put that into perspective about what a helter skelter this year was, as you mentioned, Corbin, that the Seahawks got hot at the end. They actually ended the season thumping the 49ers 38 to nine. So, I mean, this was a team that would go up and down. It was very much kind of what you saw from the college coach that Dennis Erickson was. It was some of the reason why there was a lot of people who were very skeptical when Pete Carroll was going to take over, obviously down the road, Road, uh, as the Seahawks head coach of the future. Yeah, they were just, you know, I hate, you know, it's weird saying this now that Carlos Hyde is signed to the Seahawks, but this team was the ultimate Jekyll and Hyde in Seahawks <laughs> history with, as you mentioned, getting just absolutely blown out in the season opener, but then they started off five and three. They won a bunch of games there at the beginning of the season. Then they looked horrible for five or six weeks, and then they finished with a strong couple games there to win, including that win over the 49ers. So you just never knew what you were going to get. And I think going into that season, if you would have told Dennis Erickson that Warren Moon is going to come in here and he's going to throw 26 touchdowns and make the Pro Bowl, 
I think Dennis Erickson would have been thinking, we're absolutely going to the playoffs because they were just expecting him to bring some stability to the position. They weren't expecting him to still be a, you know, not necessarily a top tier quarterback, but a Pro Bowl caliber one at that stage of his career. And yet he went out and performed really well for them. Chris Warren was still productive, even if he didn't carry the ball as much as he had in previous seasons. They had a really nice trio of receivers. Carl Lester Crumpler, a name I've not said in a long time, chipped in with 300-plus receiving yards at the tight end position. I mean, they had pieces on offense. Their offensive line was getting better. On defense, I haven't even gotten to the defensive part of this team yet. You had Darrell Williams, who started his career with the Cincinnati Bengals. He played for Dennis Erickson at Miami. And this guy was a ball hawk. He had eight interceptions to lead the team, made the Pro Bowl. Michael Sinclair in the middle of three straight double-digit sack seasons. He had 12 sacks off the edge. This team had Sean Springs coming in right away and contributing as a rookie at corner. They had pieces on defense. Dean Wells, one of the more underrated linebackers that they've ever had, was still getting getting the job done over 90 tackles that year. So, They had the pieces. This is a team that should have been a playoff team. And unfortunately, what's on paper doesn't always translate to actual wins on the field. And it just didn't happen for this team. No, it it did not. And you know, and you did a nice job of uh, you know mentioning a lot of the the really good players that, that this team had. Um, and of course, along the defensive line, you know, Michael Sinclair and Cortez Kennedy, of course, Sam uh, Adams. You know, Sam Adams. I mean, th- this was a really talented team. But at the same time, you, you know, you kind of look at the the rest of the division that year, and it, it was one of the reasons why this is appropriate. We're talking about them right now. This was the year of the Kansas City Chiefs in, in that that division as well. Uh, you know, they finished the season thirteen and three. Denver Broncos were right behind and nipping at their heels at twelve and four. And so Seattle eight and eight. There, there's just very few times, of course, Corbin, as you well know, that you're going to have three teams in the same division be able to to get into the playoffs. And so while eight and eight season might have been good enough to sneak into the playoffs some years it was not in the 1997 season yeah they certainly were in one of the toughest divisions in football and if you're an NFL historian you know that the Denver Broncos ended up winning the whole thing that year won the first Super Bowl they won again the next year to have John Elway exit his career with two straight Lombardi trophies but Kansas City was the better team win loss wise in the regular season so this was a very difficult division and then the fact they finished third you know you may be looking back at wasn't as bad that they finished eight and eight, but I still think that this is a team that could have been better in the win loss column. When you look at the talent they had on both sides of the ball, the season that they got out of Warren Moon, really the last great year in his NFL career. So I remember being a youngster watching that team. And I just thought I thought they were going to be better than they were, and it just it didn't work out. That stretch from week ten to week fifteen ended up derailing their season when they lost five out of six games real quick Rob looking back at 1997 this is maybe my favorite part of these segments I just like to look back at some fun facts from that time period some big movies that came out in 1997 a lot of our listeners are going to get excited about this Titanic one of the all-time greats (laughs) at least a lot of other people think that uh one of the all-time great films Men in Black the original coming out that year with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And then The Lost World Jurassic Park. Eh, not as good as the original, but still, you had dinosaurs eating people, so it was exciting. So some really good movies coming out in 97. The top song, Something About the Way You Look Tonight by Elton John. Can't say that I was openly listening to that song regularly, but uh, 
The best new TV show that came out that year, South Park, made its debut in 1997. So uh, that was, that's a show that I've seen every single episode that's ever been produced. I've been a fan since day one. So that was a game changer coming to the television in 1997. Wow, that absolutely was. I mean, I, I didn't realize that was South Park. I mean, that is uh, you're, you're aging me a little bit there by by listening <laughs> to that. But um, yeah, I, I uh, of the of, of all the different music and, and movies and TV shows that, that you just mentioned, definitely South Park would be my favorite of that bunch. Yeah, I don't. I can't say that I like. I said the Elton John song. Yeah, I know that he's a legend. That's just not my kind of music. But uh, back then, that was the number one hit that year. It had a number of other. Uh, that was really the boy band era. You know, they had like Backstreet Boys and NSYNC and bands like that that were super popular in the late '90s. And you started to see some new video game consoles. The year before this, you had the Nintendo 64 come out. I wonder. I had to look this up, but I actually think PlayStation, the original PlayStation, might have came out in 1997. It was in this time span. So it really was. This was this was a turning point in. American and world history with a lot of the new entertainment stuff that was coming out. And it also was a year where there was a major tragedy over in England when Princess Diana was killed in a car accident. So I would be remiss not to mention that as well. That might have been the biggest news story from that entire 1997 year. Yeah, and it's you know it's important I think to to mention that just because everything that's going on in the world you know I, I think the, to kind of bring it all back is a, is a way of, of of kind of remembering and in a time when a lot of people were hurting of course a lot of people are hurting and scared right now um, you know hopefully we can come together and heal now just as we did back in 1997. Agreed. Make sure to follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. If you'd like to be a featured sponsor on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, you can contact me, LockedSeahawks at gmail.com. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, whatever your preferred podcast platform is by going to our website, LockedOnSeahawks.com. Coming up on our Wednesday show, we're going to be answering your mailbag questions, and we're fired up about this. We're going to begin revealing our top 100 Seahawks, looking at numbers 100 to 95. You won't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. Go Hawks.